Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa and Tales to Terrify. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you are listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 95. This week we focus on the trials and travails of everyday swordsmen, beginning with the Flash story, An Old Warrior's Final Countdown, by Cat Otis. Cat lives a peripatetic life with a pair of cats who enjoy riding in the car, as long as there's no country music involved. Her fiction has appeared in Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show, daily science fiction, and flash fiction online. She can be found online via the links in our show notes. The story is read for us by Martin Rito, an educator, writer, and musician who has worked in an eclectic variety of fields, including 18 years as a technical writer and software developer, 16 years as a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, and shorter stints as a symphony musician and audiobook narrator. And now, join us for An Old Warrior's Final Countdown by Cat Otis. Ten spiraling stone steps led down to the dungeon. I dashed down them, the flames of the wall sconces wavering with the wind of my passage. Although I still held my sword at the ready, I found no one left to fight. When I reached the bottom, I sheathed my sword and drew my lockpicks instead. Nine brave warriors had given their lives to get me thus far. One by one they had fallen to our enemies' arrows and bolts, spears and axes, swords and daggers. If the tower had been better defended, we would never have stood a chance. But if the tower had been better defended, more obviously significant, it also wouldn't have taken us so long to find. Eight weeks it took for me to realize that the squalid tower on the edge of the king's lands was the place he had fortified to hold his greatest prize. They were the worst weeks of my life, in which I vacillated between the blackest of rage and despair. Now I lived with a hope so painful I feared my aging heart might burst. 
Seven tries were necessary before my shaking hands were able to pick the lock that held the cell's thick oaken door shut. My throat was so tight as I flung open the door I could barely choke out my daughter's name. Tamson. Six years old, my little girl huddled in the corner of the cell, chains wrapped around her wrists and waist and neck to keep her from shifting shape. As a human, Tamson was a helpless child. As a dragon, she would give even the fiercest warrior pause. Five times she sobbed, Fader! As I freed her from the chains and lifted her into my arms, she clung tight to my neck as I ran up the steps to the tower doors, dodging bodies, praying to every god I knew that our escape route remained clear. Panting with the effort, I burst out into night, into a circle of torchlight. Four mighty thanes stood before me with their sworn warriors arranged behind them, I shifted Tamson to my left hip and drew my sword, knowing it was hopeless. Even when I'd been a young man, strong and brave, and the slayer of monsters, I could not have fought such a host single-handedly. We were trapped. Three questions must every dragon answer truthfully, for the human brave enough, foolish enough to ask. I had asked three questions of Tamson's mother, and she had claimed me for her own as payment for that insult. Now I laid my head upon our daughters and whispered the first and last question I would ever ask her. How do I help you escape? Tamson sobbed the answer. Up! Two returned to the tower, barricading the doors behind ourselves. My breathing was labored by the time I reached the top and leaned against the crenellations to peer down at our gathered enemies. Already they had found a downed tree and were using it as a battering ram. We didn't have long. I set my hysterical daughter down on the nearest crenel and kissed her forehead. Fly free, Tamson, and remember that I love you forever. One tiny dragon soared into the sky, roaring terror and defiance as our enemies burst through the tower door and swarmed up the stairs. In a few centuries, she might be strong enough to defeat such a host, but she was a child still, my child. There were far worse ways for an aging, gray-haired warrior to die than defending the life of his precious baby girl. I raised my sword and braced myself for the battle to come, my final battle, counting the heartbeats until the warriors emerged. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. This one got to us a little bit here at the Triple F Home Office, dear listeners, and those of you who are parents can no doubt understand why. What parent worth a damn wouldn't face down certain doom for the sake of their child? Well done, Cat. On to our feature story for the week, 
A Night for Spirits and Snowflakes by Aidan Mohair. Aidan is the author of The Tide of Shadows and Other Stories and founder of the Hugo Award-winning A Dribble of Ink. A regular contributor to Tor.com and the Barnes & Noble speculative fiction blog, Aidan has written about science fiction and fantasy since 2007. Raised among the selkies and sirens of British Columbia's Gulf Islands, Aidan now lives with his family in Victoria, where he works as a web developer for the Royal British Columbia Museum. You can visit him online via the links in our show notes. Aidan's story is read by Alex Weinler, who writes and narrates from a bunker in Fulburn, an isolated village of Cthulian professors. You can find him on Twitter as at Alex Weinler. I'd like to add a personal thank you to Alex for being so patient with my fussiness. Now, please warm yourself by the fire and keep your senses sharp, for this is A Night for Spirits and Snowflakes. The dead man watched with glazed eyes as I dug his grave. My blade bit into the frozen earth. I pulled hard and it came grudgingly free. I struck again and hit a stone, a new dent in the dull sword. I was too weak to feel the shock, too tired to care. The grave, the first of four, came slowly, revealed one swing at a time. The forest was still, a twisted play on the chaos that had whipped through the trees just hours before. Those moments of slaughter... That maelstrom of death's laughter were over. The only reminder of the battle was me, weary and digging graves for my fallen brothers. It is what my long-dead, never-buried father would have done. The other bodies, those of the barbarians who had set upon us, could rot, picked clean by howling wolves until they were nothing more than the skeletal remains of fathers, brothers and sons. For all I cared, they could feed the spirits of the dead and be forgotten. Dawn's blush fell across the forest. The soft kiss of morning's first light, sinuous tendrils of mist curled from the wet ground to dance slowly around my feet. The trees around me towered like sentinels, reaching for dawn's light, watching my trial with ancient disinterest. The morning was silent. No birds sang. No breeze whispered through the tree's limbs. The rising sun was a kindred soul, a companion in my time of mourning. But so much stronger than a weak boy crying for the forgotten dead. A chop of my sword shattered the silence. The frozen ground was hard as stone. I looked at the first corpse. He had the slanted eyes and amber skin of an islander from the sinking moon isles. Dandelion, we called him though we really meant dandy-lion. He was a fop, and always talking of heroes and villains, knights and dragons, no head in the real world. Not one of our original crew, but a brother just the same. His throat was slit, and blood caked his chest, dark and frozen now, and he looked confused, and so young. Not that it mattered any more. The grave was less than a foot deep, not enough for a body. Piled stones alone might do, but the dead deserve better. It would have been easier to burn the bodies, but that is not the way taught to my people. We come from the earth, 
and to its cold embrace we must return. Hell is hot, the ground is cold. Despite the chill air, I began to sweat. My bloody shirt stuck to my back, my brow dripped. I prayed for the sun to heat the ground, to lift some burden from my shoulders. I dug. My blade broke, so I picked up another. The northern sword felt strange in my hands, the hilt too long, the balance unusual. I dug until the hole was deep enough for the body. I gathered a pile of stones. It was a relief to walk around, to stretch the screaming muscles in my arms, my neck and my back. I did not know how many stones to collect, so I gathered all I could find. When I was done, the sun was past its peak, descending back toward the dark promises of night. I rolled the body into the grave. It landed face down. With my hands, I poured the first of the black soil over the corpse. Dandelion watches the dark with tired eyes. He's drawn the worst watch during the deepest part of the night, when the red face of the sun is a far-off dream. But it's much better even at midday. Still, freeze your balls off cold, at least to be able to feel his feet once the sun's up and they start walking again. Oh, the things we'll do for the clink of two coins in our pocket. Isn't the first time he's had that thought, and likely won't be the last either. People say he's daft, but he just likes to point out the truths in life, the way things are, not the way you think they should be. There's no daftness in that. Not that any of it matters much up here in the cold, endless north. There weren't no art in the tundra, no theatre, no music. At least none that the northern men didn't make themselves. Even the best of them singing was hardly music. It was too bad his lute was broken. Now, that instrument made some damn fine music. Bastard taglong Northman breaking it over his knee, he mutters to nobody. Northmen don't know music, and that's one of those truths of life. Dandelion plucks at invisible strings, a phantom lute his only companion, just a simple melody of silent notes to keep the ghosts at bay. And why keep posting a guard every night? It's been days or weeks since they've seen another soul besides themselves. Feels like years, even. There was a buck they shot a week ago. Pity to leave all that meat steaming in the snow. It'll sure feel mighty fine now, resting in the pit of his belly. Better than stringy dried rabbit. But who's he to argue? Tahir said they needed to watch for northern ghosts, watch out for anybody on their trail. Dandelion certainly wasn't going to fight him on it. Put his neck on the chopping block. Tahir's the boss, Dandelion thought, and there'd be nowhere better if it weren't for him. Probably in hell. That's where we'd be without him, Dandelion mutters, though the watchman isn't supposed to make a sound. Precautions, Tahir had said. They keep you alive up here. At least, it's hot in hell. Ain't no snow falling from the sky, no cold in the ground. Dandelion chuckles at his own wit, impressive still, even with ice on the brain. Snap. Who's there? Dandelion whispers. Time for a change already. Each watch was going faster than the last. Never thought he'd get used to these endless nights, especially not with the spectre of the massacre at his back. Snick. 
That was metal, like a blade sliding from a scabbard. Not funny, Dandelion says to the shadows. You still can't see who's coming through the trees, but the sound of their approach is just a whisper under the wind. Is it time already? I was just getting comfortable out here. Pause. Who's there? Dandelion stands, a hand on the pommel of his battered blade. A shadow stalks through the trees, a big body, hand raised in greeting. Must be the Northman. He doesn't say much, not with that broken tongue of his. Dandelion raised his own hand, and he feels like one of the heroes from the theatre, greeting a brave companion in the dead of night. Hail, good sir, he calls, mimicking the actors he's seen on stage. The shadow drops its hand suddenly, a swift chop of the air. It is the only warning given before a calloused hand clamps over Dandelion's mouth. He bites the hand, tastes blood. He's pushed to his knees, and his head is yanked back. A feeble cry is lost in his assailant's hand. A line of heat blossoms across his neck, then spills down his chest. He doesn't know what has happened until he remembers a play he once saw at a theatre in Inniskal. The hero, a dashing youth called the Spitting Dragon, had, as always, slain the demon prince, shorn off his head. As the lifeless head rolled around the stage, red syrup erupted from the dummy. The spurting fake blood set the crowd afire with cheers, hurrahs, and the cries of dismay in equal force. Dandelion tries to cry out, to warn his friends, but all he can manage is a pathetic gurgle. Warmth spreads through his body as the first tendrils of hell wrap themselves around his sin. At least he'll finally be warm, but is there theatre in hell? The shield lay hidden among the leftovers of battle, half covered by a cloak beside a bedroll. It was my shield, though I had never blocked a blow with it, nor held it in my hands except to scour the rust, when the old knight was still alive. It had been his shield then. I was his squire, and proud to be so. He treated me fairly, as knights go. He fed me, never beat me too badly, and promised me his shield when I was old enough to wield it. Old enough to bear its weight, emotional and physical both. The old knight was not one of the bodies left for me to bury. He died in the massacre, struck down by the heavy blade of a northman, just like that, dead, as a piece of flotsam on the boiling sea of battle. I had watched it happen. Looking back now, I'm amazed I was not killed immediately during the bloody battle. I was still a target moving amongst many. I watched, unable to move, as Tahir appeared out of a storm of swords. He was covered in blood, his own and others. His helmet was dented, his shield was cloven in two and dangled from leather straps around his arm. He saw the old knight, dropped the broken shield and stooped over the body to replace one shield with another. Time seemed to slow as our eyes met. He challenged me to say anything, to claim the shield as my own. I said nothing, and he was swept away by the flow of battle. I was broken by the death of the old knight, a coward. So I hid among the chaos as best I could. I killed a man who wasn't looking out for somebody so small and stabbed him in the back of his knee and then slit his throat. One kill. Was I now a knight? A weak, 
cowardly knight, perhaps, the rules are different in this land of barbarians. And let the memory of that day dissipate, too painful to hold on to for so long. My master's shield had a lion painted on it, a crude crest that reminded me of home. He'd had it painted after saving a young boy from a lion, cementing his glory and fame among my people. I was that young boy. It was supposed to be my crest, but I lost it to Tahir through cowardice. And now, far from when the old knight had been killed, I reclaimed it. Not through valour, but through luck. Tahir, my enemy and my travelling companion, was dead, and I lived. He could not steal it from me any more. The shield had done him little good in the end. I picked it up. It was heavy as my heart as I placed it with the rest of my pilfered items. Sitting next to the bedroll was Tahir's journal. The leather cover was scarred from the hard life it chronicled. I flipped through the pages. No words, only scribbled images. I dropped the book in Tahir's grave. He deserved at least the comfort of his drawings even if his greed and poor judgment had led them all to their deaths. My father was never buried. He rotted under the hot sun, eyes plucked out by vultures and guts picked clean by hyenas. We watched for days as his body was defiled, me, my brothers and sisters. My mother cried but could do nothing. My grandfather watched, grim-faced, as the son he'd killed bloated under the hot sun. To be left unburied is to be denied the God's embrace. My father was a good man, but he rotted alongside murderers and rapists. He was caught with another man, a childhood friend. My father denied it to no avail. My grandfather was an important man in our village, so he was dishonoured and disgraced by my father's actions. Justice had to be served and dispensed by the hands of those who proclaim it. Hours after he was discovered, my father was dead. He would not raise a hand against my grandfather, even as the heavy club splintered his skull, even with his children watching. Tears streaking their uncomprehending faces, he did not utter a single cry, but his eyes screamed his pain and sadness. I loved him so much. I was too young to understand why he had to die, too young to be angry at him no matter what he did. There was no justice served to my grandfather. My father was a dirty sinner, an affront to the gods. Former friends spat on his corpse. His lover was castrated and shown in front of a jeering crowd. Spared death because he was not married. There was no room for them in heaven, my grandfather said. They could wander the earth as lost spirits and ponder their sins, until the sun burned the world and its people away. I fled home after that, too ashamed to face my grandfather, too sad to watch the sun bleach my father's bones. A good man deserves to be buried, even if he does not deserve to live. Who can you forgive, grandfather, if not the dead? The first night's snowflakes drifted down on a lazy breeze. It landed delicately atop the body, but was soon covered as I shoveled dirt into the grave. Tahir is awake. Watching the stars wind their ponderous way across the heavens, he should be asleep, but rest is for the wicked.
and the worthy. He is neither. It is not easy to lead those who have lost faith, who have betrayed the idea that they still have something to fight for. He had never asked for this, for the lives of four other men to be placed upon his shoulders. When he left the hot plains of his homeland, hired alongside hundreds of other mercenaries to wage battle in the cold north for sums of money undreamt. He'd been green as they come, skilled with a hunting bow, but unused to battle with sword or spear. Now he's hardened. Seven kills to his name, if he remembers right. More than any of the others who sleep beside him, except perhaps the bearded Northman. Blood stains his hands deeply for his seven kills have made him leader. The corpses were steaming in the snow, still freshly dead when the other survivors first looked to him for guidance. Tahir was as scared and as lost as the rest of them, but he walked with a swagger that he did not feel and spoke with a confidence that sounded like a lie to his own ears. It was dark when they named him leader. Perhaps they could not see his fear through the shadows that veiled his face. Perhaps they only saw the light of the moon reflected in his eyes and mistook it for hope. They are all that remain after the massacre. His brothers are dead, nearly eighty of them. His enemies are dead also, though their number is unknowable. A meaningless battle fought on the whims of rich politicians living in opulent mansions in the safety of cities far from the battlefields, eager only for iron and gold. So the remaining few of his once proud mercenary band flee through this labyrinthine forest, destination unknown. He cannot tell them that they're lost, they probably know. He misses the beautiful women back home, long of limb, skin the colour of coffee. He misses his wife and his two daughters. Are they happy, still alive? His son is dead, killed in battle, butchered, with gold coin tinkling in his pocket. Life is not just, nor is death. Gold is of little use to a ghost. Hail, good sir! In the quiet of the deep night, the voice is clear. The amber-skinned scout. He does not remember rising, but Tahir is already running towards the call. The fool. He slows, tries to make no sound. In the clearing are three men, one dead, two whispering fiercely. They are tall and strong of arm, men as mountains. Golden hair brushes their broad shoulders, twisted into knotted dreadlocks. One gestures to the darkness, away from Tahir's sleeping companions. More men are hidden in the shadows. Tahir turns and runs back to camp. When he is close, he yells an alarm to his stirring companions. A spear stabs suddenly from the shadows, nearly gutting Tahir, but a heavy swing of his sword knocks the spear to the ground. The spear's owner is a looming giant, now drawing an axe. Moonlight catches on the metal scale sewn to his armour. To his first thought is that he's betrayed from within his own camp. But it's not Evendur, the Northman he's been travelling with. This one has red hair and one missing eye. The giant swings his heavy axe. Tahir dodges, narrowly missing his death for a second time in mere seconds. Thud! The giant grunts, curses as his axe catches in a tree. Tahir tries to think of some witty comment, but he has never been that clever. Instead, he buries his sword into the helpless northerner. Eight kills. A 
powerful blow takes Tahir in the shoulder and sends him tumbling. The cold ground catches him. Momentum flips him onto his back, takes the wind from his lungs. Something snags as he slides, the sound of snapping wood, the burn of tearing skin. An arrow juts from his shoulder, its haft broken in by the fall. No blood trickles from the wound. Numbness spreads down his arm. He stands and faces the darkness, lifts his blade with his good arm. His shield is back with his bedroll, a hard pillow, useless now. The confused yells of his roused companions fill the night. A shadow cuts through the dark, another arrow. As in a dream, time seems to crawl, but still Tahir is too slow to move from the arrow's path. It buries itself in his other shoulder. He does not hit the ground this time, but his sword falls, dropped from his numb hand. He has failed. What good is a leader who leads his followers to death at the hands of raiders in the night? He can hear someone crashing through the forest, a battle cry, loud as a roaring lion. One of the barbarians gestures wildly to the forest behind Tahir. A third arrow, right into his gut. He falls, pain and numbness somehow together. He never wanted to lead. He should have said no. But if not him, who? Who was left? A tall man appears from the shadows, one of the golden-haired barbarians. He holds a bloody blade. Quiet anger pulses in his eyes. For a moment, Tahir wonders what thoughts run behind those eyes, what compulsions and lusts fuel this warrior in the dead of night. He is lost, Tahir knows. His eyes show panic hidden under bravado. Fear beneath a slick smile. He's as lost as we are, without a leader, without purpose. He kills because the man who filled his purse told him to kill. It's not personal. He kills because it is what he excels at. Just like me, Tahir thinks. Hell will welcome us both with open arms. Tahir dies on the blade, final thrust through his heart. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Snow fell. Heaven wept frozen tears for my fallen friends. I had laughed at heaven with them once as we tipped back mugs of warm ale. We roared raucously at the thought of an afterlife, at the idea that there was more to our existence than fighting, than killing those weaker and more cowardly than ourselves. We all laughed, but I think we all secretly believed, too, in our own way. My father's spirit hid in the shadows of every pub in every foreign land, he watched me with sallow eyes as I stuffed that pain deep into the darkest corners of myself, drowned it in liquor and melancholic laughter. They were my friends. I realised this as I buried them. I would not have said so before, when I was the whipping boy in the small crew of mercenaries. I wanted to kill them, to see the look of terror in their eyes as my blade slid through their heart. I dreamed of them scattered about the forest, as they were now, paying penance for embarrassing me, for making me the butt of a joke, even in the shadow of the massacre. But camaraderie has a funny way of rearing its head. I thought I hated them, I thought they hated me, but they were my only family now, my only friends in the wide expanse of the world, and they were dead, buried one by one at the hands of the ridiculed squire. Then there was the Northman, what to do with him, he was a friend like the others, though it seemed queer to think of him in such terms. We shared no language, but still had formed a bond, a kinship shaped by shared hardship. He saved my life when my countrymen couldn't. I had tried desperately to return the favour, but was too slow and lacked the necessary killer instinct. Useless, guilty of hesitating, I was scared, and now his blunt stained my hands as surely as the man who had put his blade through Evendur's heart. I will not lie, I agonised about him, about burying one from the north, preparing his body in the way of my people. Where would he go now? Would his soul be trapped within the grave I dug, unable to find its way to whatever afterlife these northmen expected? Would he feast among my people, rewarded for his valiance, or would he rot, nothing more than compost in the ground? In the end, I honoured him as I would any friend. I dug a grave, larger than the rest, my chipped and broken blade tearing at the ground, the snow a never-ending reminder that the world went on, ignorant of what happened in one small clearing among many in this vast forest, ignorant or uncaring. What is the difference? I rolled the Northman into the grave. He slumped at the bottom, staring with open eyes. I'd seen drunkards like that, nearly dead in the alleys of Chard. Snowflakes soon settled on him, covering his blood-stained chest. One landed on his unblinking eye. There was no life left there, but the dead can speak through their eyes. His eyes whispered of weary resignation and sorrow. The first clump of dirt landed on his chest, covering the thin layer of snow. The second covered his face, and so on, until he was buried under dirt and stone. 
Wrapped in a heavy cloak, Evendur fights desperately to keep the cold at bay. He cannot sleep, not since his band was massacred by the dark-skinned warriors from the south, the same warriors who now sleep next to him, the only companions he has left. He hates them, though they'd saved his life, proved good friends. Trust was hard to find in this frozen land, but death stalks the lonely. What else could he have done? He had little choice but to throw his stones in with those he'd called his enemies just days before. He could have ignored the boy on the outskirts of the massacre, continued his wounded sojourn through the wreckage. He could have played dead among the other warriors, whose souls rested now in Valhall. Instead, he reached out to the dark-skinned youth. He is not stupid. He knew the need for companions in his harsh homeland. No matter the colour of their skin, if they killed him, well, better that than a slow death from freezing. He does not want to die with them. What happens upon death without the proper rituals to send his body to Valhall? The warriors who died on the battlefield were drinking now, the nectar of the gods warm and sweet on their lips. What awaits him if he dies alongside dark-skinned heathens? He is terrified to find out. He is also afraid to let go of this world, no matter what promises the holy men make of the afterlife. He is a coward, a disgrace to his family, to shun death and glory so. He had opened himself on the battlefield, thrown himself with vigour and vehemence at the black army, and had slain many men. Despite his abandon, he lives when so many other warriors are dead. Cold, sober corpses on the ground, but warm, drunk spirits in Valhall. Perhaps, he thinks, I was not meant to die there. The gods in Valhall, they have some plan, a higher purpose for me than to die as one among many. He thinks of the boy. He should have died a child in a battle of men. He knows so little of living, even less of killing. Yet he lives too. What justice is there that a young heathen was spared when the great warriors of Valhall were not? The gods are unjust or blind. Which is it? And how can he know? A yell rings hollowly through the trees, like the keening call of a banshee. The words are unintelligible, but the meaning is clear. A warning of a death descending. Evendor is on his feet faster than thought, fueled by instinct and fear. The wooden handle of his axe is smooth in his calloused hand. He does not remember picking it up. It is nearly a part of him, always within easy reach. The dark blood of heathens stains its notched blade. He grips the axe with white knuckles and scans the darkness for the source of the cry. The others are awake. Two of the heathens are missing. The weak one, skinny as a girl, and the tall one that the others look to as their leader. Beside him is the gruff one, his own blade drawn. He looks at Evendur with all the hate and distrust of an orphan forced to take food from a hand that's as likely to beat him bloody. The boy looks terrified. The boy and the gruff man yell at each other. Evendur cannot understand them. They don't know where the sound came from either, that much he can tell. The heavy thump sounds in the distance, followed by a fleeting moment of silence. The gruff one yells at Evendur, gesturing wildly into the darkness. Why are they just standing there? 
They're not warriors, afraid of the dark as much as death. Evendor runs towards the sound, another thud, then a cry of pain and a gurgle of a slit throat. Evendor can hear the southerner behind him, crashing heavily through the trees. He makes enough noise to wake a bear. The cover afforded them by the darkness is blown. Evendor lifts his axe above his head and releases all the anger and fear within him in one savage cry. He bursts into a clearing and pulls up short, startled, the blush of battle suddenly draining. The dark-skinned leader of his band of misfits is impaled on the end of a sword. Arrows jut from his body like extra limbs akimbo. But he still lives, holding weakly to what life he has left until seconds later, when his head is lopped from his body. Two men stand by the body, both tall and blonde, one holding a ridiculous jewelled sword with a blood-spotted blade. He picks up the head. There's an air of wealth and arrogance to him, a casual disregard for the danger surrounding him. He's a man of Evendor's blood, one of Volhol's warriors. Relief floods Evendor. He is saved, though the others are as good as dead. His gods are not blind and unjust after all, but the Northman, with the jewelled sword, does not open his arms in greeting. Instead, he tosses the head at Evendur. It hits him in the chest and drops to the ground. You forsake our people. You betray Volhol, he says, spitting the words in a native tongue to the cold north. The severed head stares at Evendur, taunting him. It speaks no answers to the questions buzzing in his head. I'm no traitor, Evendur snarls. The other warrior is lost in the shadows, circling around behind Evendur. He is exposed in the forest clearing and has no choice but to let the man flank him. Thrown in with heathens and bandits, what is your life worth now? Little, nothing, less than these shit-coloured demons. He expected friends among these Northmen, but finds enemies. I did what I must to survive. My band was slaughtered. I had no choice. And who killed them? These black-souled demons did not deserve your mercy. Your blade is not slick with their blood. My hands have killed more heathens than you can imagine. Our gods touched the battlefield with fiery fists. No one survived. I thought the world had ended. The other man kicks Evendur hard in the back of the knees and they buckle. A blade presses against his back, a dull pressure against his leather armour. The gods will take no pity on you, should you make it to Valhor, says the Northman with the jewelled sword. Traitors are not welcomed in the lap of the gods. Drop your axe. Evendur doesn't move, just stares defiantly as his countrymen. What other choice had he, now or after the massacre? Was a life so easy to throw away, so unworthy of saving? He had banded with heathens when the gods had forsaken all. Was that wrong? Look what I've found, calls a new voice. A weaselly man emerges from the shadows. He is as tall as the rest of them, but more slender at the shoulders. He has the boy with him, holding him by a fistful of hair to prevent escape. Should be a nice little prize for Falar. He likes them before they've got hair on their balls. Falar's dead, said the Northman with the jewelled sword. He's dead, says the rat-faced one. Well, fuck, 
Kill them, then, I suppose. Kill them all. A flurry of sound erupts from behind Evander. The blade is moved from his back. The boy is flung to the ground, alive. And the rat-faced man starts running, sword held wildly before him. Evander wastes no time. Doesn't even turn to see the fight breaking out behind him. The southerner can handle himself. The fight between Evander and the rat-faced man is quick and bloody. His opponent swings his sword too close and Evandor steps inside its reach. Swinging his axe in a wide arc, he severs the rat-faced man's head from his body. I should throw the fucking thing at him. Evandor has time to think during that minuscule moment in battle when time stops. When the maelstrom is given time to catch up. He stoops to pick it up. Just as quickly, the gruff southerner wins his battle. The Northman leader is the only one left. Two against one now, even Evendor likes these odds. But the gruff southerner is staggering, clutching his left shoulder where it meets his neck. His hand moves and blood pours from the wound. He looks around, then falls to the ground. His lifeblood pools around him, soaking the forest floor. Well, that was a mess, says the other man. Evendor begins to stand, Knuckles entwined in the rat-faced man's greasy hair. No, no, stay on your knees, don't make this difficult. We call a truce, says Evendor. We are both lost without friends in this forest. The North Man laughs. A truce? After you killed my men? You will die out here all alone. The North Man laughs again. Fight me, says Evendor. Single combat, give me that. Let me prove myself to Valhor. The other man laughs. Why would I do that? You're dead already. You're just waiting for my blade to prove it. Why wait longer? The Northman raises his jewelled sword, likely stolen from some rich nobleman who rots now among true men on some forgotten battlefield. Will the gods forsake me? Evendur wonders. He prays they will not. What lies on the other end of that sword, beyond the grasp of the living? He will soon have an answer. The man lunges and stabs his blade into Evendur, a single thrust to the heart, and the warm grip of the gods wrap around the coal forest. As death steals him to bring him before the gods for judgment and atonement, a new shadow falls from the canopy above his killer. Through dimming eyes and ragged breaths, Evendur sees the Northman tackled to the ground. What god comes to my rescue? Am I saved from their wrath? He loses sight of them, but the sick sound of a slit throat is clear as Volhol's silver bells ringing on a chill winter morning. One voice grunts and gurgles, a final cry of defiance as death descends to claim a soul. A smaller voice weeps. Evendur's grip on the world of the living is almost gone. The sounds and smells mere shadows of reality now. A figure stands above him, ready to judge his sins, its face hidden until it crouches lower. Tears trickle from frightened eyes. Not a god, but the boy. The Northman with the jewelled sword was the second soul I ever stole, the second I cheaply sold to hot slavery in hell. 
or rather to whatever realm these barbarians pass onto when they die. Surely our gods do not accept them alongside our people in heaven. Or do they? We have no forests back home, not like this. We have small copses of spindly trees gathered like thirsty animals around oases. Yes, but nothing like this endless labyrinth of towering behemoths. Alone, amidst their greatness, I learned what solid companions they could be if one just listened for the wisdom they whispered. I have buried both friends and former enemies. I have wondered at the sense of the world, the backward logic of our cultures and our laws. What justice was there in a world where the lowly soldiers and greedy mercenaries should face death so the rich can grow richer? Is there pride and honour, as the barbarians claimed, in risking your life or taking the breath from others? Or is it just about being pragmatic, about living one more day, gambling for coin with your life? Is war the realm of the noble or the ignoble? In war, the only currency is the blood of the innocent and the tears of their kin. The smell of the forest, once so alien to me, was now a comfort, a reminder that places remain where war is inconceivable. Several days, or possibly weeks before, we fought a battle to the north. Afterwards, we survivors began to refer to it simply as the massacre. My people and the barbarian northmen were torn apart without discrimination. Only the souls of the blessed or damned were spared. Most of those who escaped were now dead in this clearing. Memories of the massacre are seared into my mind. My band of mercenaries, several dozen strong, were tipped off by locals to the movements of the Northmen. Gold can buy you much, even in the land of your enemies. Gold and cold steel. The ambush was supposed to be easy. We outnumbered them nearly two to one. Our leaders, those with the most gold bursting the seams of their pockets, spoke with brash confidence. We would rout them and show them that even in their homeland, with their gods watching over their shoulders, they were nothing. Of course, the priests failed to mention that we'd left our gods behind on the hot plains of our home, weeks and worlds removed from the cold forests of the north. We did outnumber them, that much was true. But one of their warriors was worth easily two of ours. They had experience, and they knew the land. The north is a land rife with brutal tribal warfare. They slaughter one another to seek favour for their gods. We are not like that. Our ambush gave little advantage, and soon the battle was heated and wild. The bloody wind of the gods swept through the battlefield, killing without prejudice. Slowly the number of dead increased, and the number of living dwindled. And then it was over. The Northman found me hiding under a fallen tree. I refused to leave my cradle at first, thinking he meant to kill me, as he'd killed so many of my brothers. Even when he handed me food, a filthy piece of jerky, I snarled at him and cowered deeper into my hole. Eventually he left. I ran after him. My senses were scattered, but I understood that being alone in this defiled land meant death. He accepted my companionship without a word. Though we could not speak to one another, we both just wanted to put death at our backs. The rest we could decide upon later. 
We weren't yet clear of corpses when a voice called out. Dandelion and Tahir rose from their hiding place in the wreckage. Still alive. The gods are good, I thought. I was overjoyed at the sight of them. It was stupid, but I was young. My two brothers leapt at the Northman with weapons drawn. He raised an axe in one giant fist and pushed me behind him with another. Only my voice, shrill, crazed, stopped them from killing each other. I was done with killing. No more on that day, or ever. I don't know why they heeded me, or why he protected me. We were all sick of killing, I guess. When the world ends, what use is there in fighting the few who are left? The Northman joined as a companion, if not a loved one. The battleground surrounding us was not of his choosing any more than it was ours. We left the massacre behind, no destination in mind. We found the others along the way, weary warriors and defiers of fate. A motley crew, certainly, but one joined by fate and circumstance, and we told ourselves that the killing was behind us. We would find a ship, we'd go home, and we'd never kill again. The gods have a ripe sense of irony. The final body took the longest to bury. I was exhausted, physically, mentally. My sword was dull, and the tales of these four men told in its scrapes, scratches and chips. I placed it on Wormwood's chest and wrapped his hand around the pommel, and I filled the grave by hand. Wormwood is dead, or nearly so. It no longer burns, at least. It no longer feels like anything. His arm is barely attached at the shoulder after a vicious blow from a Northman's axe. How is he still alive? His other hand is wrapped around the wound in a vice-like grip. Can you hold your life in if you squeeze hard enough? He can't see much, just the white stars falling endlessly from the sky, wafting slowly down on the gentle whisper of the wind. He has regrets, sins on his shoulders. He doesn't deserve to die among the stars. He deserves to die among the devils and the dust of home, torn apart by those he has wronged. A beautiful death is not right. The only sound comes from far away. A sobbing man? Who has survived? One of his companions? Or the bloody Northland ghosts? He had tried to kill as many as he could. It was all he knew. How to kill and how to spend his coin. And both are over now. The sobbing continues for what seems like years. Wormwood tries to call out for help or farewell but the only sound he can make is a wet cough. It sounds like a bucket of rocks poured into a harbour, sinking to the seabed in a royal of bubbling water. The sobbing fades away, caught on the south wind, beginning an endless journey to find the ears it was meant for. With it go the stars, still falling until they fade to black, and nothingness. I was once asked how a soul buried in the earth was supposed to find its way to heaven, suspended as it is far above the skies. I didn't have an answer. I was a child still, and the foreigner's tone was mocking. The old knight answered the man instead. A soul knows the way, for the earth and the sky are connected, all part of the greater gods. The foreigner smirked 
and made an off-hand remark about delusions and heathen stupidity. He wasn't laughing so hard when his teeth were shattered and his nose crunched. The old knight was a pious man and took no liberties with those who derided our beliefs. The man was lucky to be alive and not sinking to the bottom of the sea where his people claimed the gods' rest. I still don't have an answer to that question. I'm not even sure I believe that what the old knight had to teach, that his beliefs weren't formed of a desperate yearning for answers rather than holy truth. I used to laugh with the others when the old knight's back was turned. If heaven existed, it was a concern of the dead, not of the living. Now with four friends buried in the ground, ready to find their way to the skies above, I pondered that man's words again. To what end does this life lead? Are my friends basking in the glory of the gods? Are they gone? Are they ether on the wind? Or food for the worms? Does my father walk the earth as a spirit? Or is he just a pile of white bones and sad memories? At least my companions here would not be food for the wolves. That was one small gift I could bestow. I once laughed at heaven at the idea of gods watching over us all from some luxurious, inconceivable realm. But now that was the only comfort I had in the lonely night. Was I wrong before, or desperate now? Would the gods keep me safe in this land? Or was I left to my own devices? I'm a man now, no longer a boy. What awaited me? With bodies to bury, my purpose was clear, but now, now I must save myself, find a path from this hell back into the living world. I ate one of the Northmen. A slice of his leg, raw. It was a sacrifice, an acknowledgement that to be human is to be weak, to die. To live, I must be ruthless. For reasons incomprehensible to me, I was still alive. I had survived a battle that had killed others, seasoned, brutal men. I lived through this skirmish, watched each man killed, and then I buried the good ones. Could I survive again, win a battle against a foe I could not fight? The gods, ours, theirs, or someone else's, wanted me to live. It was an easy conceit to grasp in the wilderness, alone and friendless. Would the gods have kept me safe through so much destruction, only to serve me a slower death by freezing or hunger? I left the clearing. I don't know how much time had passed since we had first entered. The days and nights were a messy blur. I couldn't even remember sleeping. I left their bodies behind, but not the memories of those men. The harsh truths I'd learned at their sides came with me, too. Those I kept, tucked safely away with me, along with a promise that I would not meet those men again until I was an old man who had died happily in a bed surrounded by grandchildren. I would live. I would laugh in the face of the gods who had stolen away so many others. I left my father with them, a piece of his spirit in each grave. His regrets and mine lay to rest beside my friends. Besides, perhaps we could find our own peace. Like a ghost, haunted by my memories and fears, I disappeared into the dark forest.
They do say that history is written by the victors, and legends are typically built around heroes and occasionally villains. But the often faceless rank and file who meet more ignominious fates are usually overlooked. Aden shows us that they too have tales to tell, and that they too leave their marks upon the world. As to our marks, please remember that Farfetch'd Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you cannot change it and you really cannot sell it. Be sure to give credit where credit is due, and all other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will be engulfed by the mists of time, and believe me, we can do that. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We're all over the place. You can't move on the internet without tripping over us. So leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. I'm off to go and see my favourite band in concert. I will see you all next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.